Yes, this is another man-to-man podcast and I'm here again. I'm here with an entrepreneur, Joseph Oliver, who's opened up the first CBD shop in London, has featured in the Times and the Telegraph, who started a meditation movement, who's been the CEO of many different companies, started up many different companies, uh, gone to China, been a CEO in China, started up environment uh, plans and and, and ways to uh, better the environment in China. And um, I'm just so happy to um, be speaking to him today. And I'm just happy for him to be here with us and to share his views and experiences and everything else. But the first thing I want to ask you, Joseph, is what started you on this journey for becoming an entrepreneur or just just your general life journey how did you start this journey because it's such a it's such a vast and um varied journey what initiated it sure it's a great question i think that um you know my journey as a kind of more formal entrepreneur uh started back in 2005 2006 so you know it's been uh, a progression whereby I've changed as a person. Um, my views have changed and, and grown. And um, that starting point is kind of like every day, you know? And I think that there is really? an, element, yeah. an element whereby, um, you know, I, and I'm ha- I will, I'll tell you how sort of the context came about, but, you know, now, <clears throat> now I'd approach things very differently and I feel like I do start each day afresh kind of thing. Um, okay. So, yeah, so I think it's also just to demystify this idea of an entrepreneur. You know, I think that can start any time, any point for anyone. You know, um, yeah, and that that's the perfectly normal way to do it. It's a bit like climbing a mountain, and you put a foot in front of the other each time. So I remember, you know, part of this is like there is an inherent spirit that we all have, right? And mm. um, I remember being about five years old and setting up a. Uh, a stall on the side of a, um, a road in France where my parents had taken us um, to wow. a retreat. And I was selling the flowers that had actually from the meadow nearby for very cheap amounts. This is when, you know, before the Euro. And I was reselling sweets and I was just charming people into kind of buying these things for a very small amount of money. But I was able to sell out the flowers and the sweets. And I remember, I think I was doing that with my brother at the time. Mm, mm. I was like a little kid who you walk by and goes, you know, would you like to buy something? And you obviously don't need whatever's on the table. And you can see whatever I'm saying was just being plucked from the nearby field. But, you know, people did buy them. Um, So there was, you know, that's when I was like five years old. Now, I don't have some sort of continuous entrepreneurial journey from there, but... Mm. um, it, it amuses me because I think, you know, that's probably one of the first instances that I was, you know, acting like a tiny capitalist in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, what happened was quite interesting as my journey progressed is one is, um, you know, I started to really ask questions about myself and what it meant to be me when I was very clearly, I was asking these questions about when I was 14, 15 years old. Um, okay. That came about because I think partly because I really felt out of place in the school that I was in. Um, okay. I had uh, kids bully me. I had uh, at one point I felt like I had no friends, um, <clears throat> and it was because in some ways I was different and I thought differently, and I and I kind of um, didn't want to fit in because I didn't really believe that those kind of groups were were really closest to me. So. Yep. Um, as the story goes, it went fine. I mean, I, I, one side effect is I actually learned quite a lot of martial arts. So, you know, okay. the bullies kind of left me alone after a while. Um, mm. But that was something I kind of had to climb uphill about. You know, I had to do that work myself and kind of um, protect myself. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Hackney. So, um, yeah. quite, it's quite a rough area. Yeah, I was quite familiar with that, you know, there were yeah. games, uh, these kind of things. Uh, when yeah. I was growing up, it was quite normal in some crazy way. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I lived in basically in a London 
for the vast majority of my life um, and it's, it's tough as a kid especially when you know people trying to make you fit in or, or trying to kind of make an example of you um, and my parents were Buddhists Tibetan Buddhists so I grew up knowing meditation and I ended up doing quite a lot of martial arts so I ended up learning that you really shouldn't kind of if you can help it don't fight you know like, yeah. don't, don't do that and, and I think a lot of people at that time took it for a weakness but what they didn't realize was that I was kind of um I was holding back you know like because I thought that this is not the right appropriate use you shouldn't be violent if you can help it right um, so in the end it was you know there was a point where I kind of uh thought okay well I will um disarm people right so instead of uh doing nothing which has been my previous kind of modus operandum i just started to disarm people or or just confronted them and wouldn't let them actually t touch me physically so that is what in, in ways of what you're saying you what just like physically would restrain them in, is that what you're saying or is it more yeah. of a okay yeah there are ways to basically completely throw someone off balance or completely you know redirect their energy to a point where they look like a fool mm. and come near you you know and you but you don't actually hurt them yeah so this is the state i got to around about that age and i started to think of myself more as a warrior okay and particularly a warrior of the heart so mm. someone who had quite clear value system that this is right and that's wrong in fact i wanted to basically protect people and look after people um because i thought there was a lot of injustice a lot of cruelty and cruelty kind of felt like the norm you know especially well it kind of is in teenage teenage years some of it you know yeah yeah it definitely um, is and I realized that, you know, that was just something that I was kind of like really, really wasn't okay for me. So there was a point where I kind of, you know, I was studying Kung Fu at the time, actually, Shaolin Kung Fu. And I started to see myself more on the warrior path. Okay. And I, and I discovered um, the Shambhala warrior path, which is a Tibetan Buddhist heart warrior. So it's about being kind of courageous in the face of adversity and being strong enough to face those let's say um dark aspects of yourself and thus to be able to kind of be a light amongst you know some craziness um, yeah uh, so i started to build my confidence and my integrity in that fashion you know and that allowed mm. me uh, at that point which i was 15 years old or so to really start to address who it was who i was as a man or as yeah. a growing man you know i wasn't quite a man at that age to be honest you know it was definitely still a work in progress um mm. But that started to give high, a lot of context. And when you're studying with monks um, who are pretty much the biggest badasses you've ever met, you know, they're the strongest, most capable fighters you could ever come across. Um, really? But they're also incredibly peaceful. And their whole, <clears throat> their whole modus is like not to fight, you know, like that, <clears throat> um, that has a deep impression. Yeah. So I think that, you know, had I been studying something else, which might have been more of a, just an external martial art, I probably would have had a different opinion. But but at that time, I was also, you know, practicing Tai Chi and Qigong and cultivating inner energy, as they call it. I see. I see. Wow, amazing. So, amazing. Um, that allowed me to really think, okay, well, uh, you know, at that time, it's, it's still quite a physical concept. Um, mm -hmm. And I was also, you know, I went through a period of deep loneliness and really thinking, okay, well, this is the shittiest life we can have. Like, I had no friends, I had bullies who were trying to, you know, put me down every day and yeah. what came out of that was uh you know effectively reaching a sort of rock bottom and then going right I'm going to stand up to this physically training myself to the extent that I could protect myself and then also I started to really get to know people and really care about people yeah and, that meant that my friend group grew and it became you know I ended up having quite a large friend group probably the largest group of all the people in the school kind of thing you know oh, oh wow so, so you like, went from you went from like having no friends to the most friends based yeah, on exactly and um and that was quite powerful tra transformation but it really stemmed from coming from the inside you know and conquering yeah. what was effectively quite a lot of fear you know, yeah. any any anger anything is really comes from below it, it's fear 100 percent. um and by doing that i started to say okay well this is cool i enjoy this i like being around people i like having friends and i started mm. to become a kind of nexus for people so i was uh, networking and i was hosting parties and i was enjoying that process and getting better at interpersonal relations really and yeah. um 
the confidence I brought to it allowed me to, um, you know, not, not to be a wallflower, as they say, but to really be kind of a bit gregarious and a bit more myself and, and not yeah. to be ashamed of that in any fashion, just to be me. Um, and I, so I kind of came out of my shell, right? Um, yeah. And by doing those parties, I, they started to get kind of popular, right? And, um, you know, the how, like if I had a house party, it'd be packed. There would be no space, you know? And I moved out of my house, my parents' house when I was about 18. Um, <clears throat> and uh, got a house house with about seven other guys which is you know was very messy but it was a lot of fun yeah, um, of course. and that period meant that I was doing so many parties and, and known for that that people started to kind of say you know uh or could you do this this event for me and that kind of thing and at the same time um I started to study art and uh part, partly because it was probably the only thing I was any good at um, and even then, as in, as in drawing. Well, no, this is the thing. I wasn't particularly good at any particular type of art. I was just mm. creative, right? Okay. So I was thinking of new things. Um, yeah. So I managed to get into a pretty decent art school, um, and that was based on the philosophy of Plato's Cave, which is the you know that effectively we are witnessing a huge amount of illusions, and that behind the illusions is the real kind of manipulation of the mind. Um, mm -hmm. So Plato's Cave is an analogy, and I created an artwork from that, and I got in um, to an art to an art school which had some reputation. It turned out to have pretty bad teaching, but um, that meant that I kind of felt okay. Well, I've got now some sort of anchor, right? There's something that I'm yeah. doing that is more tangible than kind of floating around. Yeah. And doing the art, uh, what I really realised was it's it's very hard, to, and if not very nebulous way to make any money or, or career in fact it's mm -hmm. like you know most people come out of art school and have no employable skills and no one wants to employ them or they end up doing something in advertising right yeah now being a fine fine art graduate i was basically unemployable and i wasn't even that good at art so <laughs> i had to think you know what am i what am i going to do with this i've just put all this time in yeah how long was that by the way how long how long was you doing that for oh, I, didn't, art I didn't take a gap i ended up doing art studies i did uh foundation art diploma and then a, and then a ba honors and the total time was four years okay so mm. I, I, you know, I went in um and the 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 subject was fine art and it was the practical fine art it wasn't history it wasn't you know it was just me making art so yeah and during that time, I was still focusing on a lot of inner work. So my artwork was actually around lucid dreaming. Oh, wow. And uh, I studied lucid dreaming for the same amount of time, if not, you know, a few years before too. And I was utilizing that as a way to access my subconscious and then process some of the feelings and fears and aspirations, goals I had. Um, and it became quite effective as in I was able to to lucid dream when I chose and I start to get a very deep sense of who I was again um so this is all very much inner work really so do you know just just on the lucid dreaming thing because mm. I'm I'm not really I, I understand it to a level but is the lucid dreaming the, the, the situation where you actually leave your body and you can physically tell when you leave your or spiritually tell when you leave your body and you are traveling wherever you want in it in you know in the whole universe is, is that what it is yeah i mean there's there's out of body experiences where you're kind of you leave your body the, the mm. thing about lucid dreaming is that you're asleep right yeah um so you're in you're basically in a dream um but what happens is you become aware that you're dreaming okay and some people have these spontaneously some people have never had them but they're quite easy to to learn if you follow certain techniques mm. Um, and at that time I was following, um, I got some, some guidance, um, but I also was reading a lot of the Carlos Castaneda books, which are about this, um, um, basically a, a indigenous teacher in, in, um, I think New Mexico, who <clears throat> is, uh, ingesting things like peyote and studying with a teacher called Don Juan. Now, yeah. The interesting thing about Carlos Costaneda, who um, he had an incredible career and wrote loads of books, and they're just amazing. And people aren't quite sure if they're true or not. And he always said that they're true, and a lot of people believe they're true. 
to me it didn't matter because mm. what i realized was that the techniques worked okay and um it was accessible and i could do it and so i was mixing these um shamanistic and indigenous practices with my uh, ancient chinese martial art energy practices uh, wow. and mixing it a little bit with the tibetan practices meditation and, and types of lucid dreaming so mm. i was really kind of like throwing it all in the mix right and and trying to produce artworks that kind of represented these experiences wow um, but at the same time i knew that you know that's lovely and it's very self-aware but it's not necessarily out there providing value to other people right yeah so uh and the key about career or being able to be paid for what you do is you're basically creating value some sort for someone else 100 percent. yeah so uh i thought okay well what am i doing for other people i'm doing parties right so mm -hmm. i was like okay i should start maybe i should start doing a kind of like events company now mm. roughly when i started to think about this was in the last year of my degree okay and um i was looking around for um grants i think to support the work that i was doing i'm thinking maybe i could fund myself with a grant to make artworks and stuff like that and i yeah. came across a a three-month course called Just an Idea, which was uh, run as a social enterprise course, and it was paid for by the Islington government. And at that time, I believe I was in Islington, so I was able to get the grant. And uh, it meant that I had three months of entrepreneurship training as a social entrepreneur, and it was everything to start your own business. And I thought, wow, okay, well, this is great. I'd love to do this. Sounds what I realized great is I wasn't allowed to tell my university that I was doing that. So I used to sneak off during the day and mm. study um, in a group, a very advanced type of group facilitation around what it meant to be a social entrepreneur. Mm. The whole process was to actually create a business whilst on the course. So it was, it was modeled after um, a very successful program uh, in, I think it's in Copenhagen. Um, which was, I can't remember the name, but there, there's, um, I'll think about it. I'll, I'll, I'll get the, the link to it afterwards, but it was basically very yeah. practical again. It's not theoretical. It was go off and do it and set it up and, and learn from that. Okay. So learn from experience more than anything. Yeah. Learn from doing. And that's mm. a, that's a very unique type of entrepreneurship. It's mm. uh, spontaneous. It's not always brilliant, but it is definitely what I would consider kind of like a pure type of entrepreneurship. Yeah. It's very much, you put, you know, everything on the line and yeah. uh, you get in, you get immersed and you get your hands dirty. It, it, it kind of probably takes away the fear, you know, for it maybe not completely, but in some ways, if when you fail, you know, um, at something that you've tried or you haven't got a client, et cetera, et cetera, I guess maybe it's just helping you take away the fear of doing something or have been hesitant to do something. I mean, it, it, I don't think it removes the fear because the fear is ever present, but yeah. um, it, it does mean you've kind of jumped over the ledge. So there's no going back. That's yeah. what it does. And so oh, in some ways you're forced to continue on your journey, mm -hmm. um, which does include fear, but um, it means it's not dominated by fear. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I learned that and that was a three month process. And at the end of it, I thought, okay, no, I can definitely do a business, even though you know, looking back now, I think, oh, my God, you know, like, I had really no idea. <laughs> like, I had no idea. Yeah. So I came out of university and I started my own company and it yeah. was called Bash Creations. And it was all about um, sustainability in the entertainment industry. And so I was trying to merge both my belief that, you know, nature is a guide and a, and a healer and, a, and our, our best kind of, um, let's say, our, 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 best, our best kind of uh, ally. Mm -hmm. um, and that the destruction of that is, is abhorrent and we should be really not, we should be lessening our impacts and we should be looking at every avenue that we can to do that. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, playing at the sense that I was actually an arts graduate who loved to party and I used to host lots of parties and I was like okay, okay. I want to have fun right and I was like well how can you have fun and do good at the same time mm. this is like the underlying kind of supposition between 
underneath that company and why I started it. And what was amazing is that it was quite unique at the time. And I didn't, didn't realize that until maybe six months in. Okay. And when I started to really understand, I was like, oh, okay, you mean no one's ever done that before? Um, and that kept happening. So that was, you know, the course of about three, four years, I was able to kind of do a lot of boundary pushing and uh, edge walking. So inventing yes. projects which had never been done, helping people mm-hmm. understand things that never happened, navigate the future in effect. Yeah, very in- innovative, really. Is what you're saying? You're just basically just been an innovator in that. Yeah, field. except at the time, at the time I wasn't particularly aware of that thread. So I was aware mm-hmm. of it done, but I wasn't aware that I was doing a process of carving out somewhat of a new industry. You know, mm-hmm. along alongside a few other people, but. Um, it, it was I just kind of was in it and going wow yeah of course you've never done it well let's just do it you know as opposed to hold in a second this is quite special you know like this is you know so I didn't have the objectivity that I have now on it which is yeah you know I was in it um do you do you, do you feel um you know I mean in a way you'll, you'll kind of say it was kind of in like a flow state in a sense yeah um uh, do you feel like in that state that you was in at that time it, it it's like it it's is it more? Is it more? Is it more conducive to success, or obviously having the experience that you have now? I mean, um, I, mean I mean, success. Just to really pass out the word success. Success is doing better today than you did yesterday. Of course, you know? of course. So, yeah. so there are so many mistakes that people attribute success to, and and for instance, making a lot of money doesn't mean you're successful. It just means you know how to make a lot of money. But at that time, I was failing as well all the time. Mm. You know. Um, uh, but at the same time, yes, I think I was in a certain flow state. And partly that was because I had jumped over the edge. There was no net. I didn't have a back door and I wasn't going back. So, so you burnt, yeah. you burnt the ship, you burnt the ship, basically. That was all I had. Yeah, 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 yeah. And at the time, my parents, for instance, had gone on a three year Buddhist retreat. In oh, isolation. Wow. So the three safety years. net that I'd had wasn't there. Um, I didn't have uh, an income. I didn't have any saved money. I didn't have uh, particularly a career that I could, or a, or a degree that I could rely on. I had one way, which was to go forwards and not look back. That's how. Mm-hmm. I which even now looking back on is really like that. That's like an initiation process, you know. That's like yeah. trial by fire. And mm-hmm. what it means is you you are so you're so in it you're just in it and there's no chance that you cannot keep moving forwards because if you stop you die kind of thing and i, I know yeah. that sounds a bit extreme but yeah but it's true it's but true it's true yeah it's yeah. like what you're creating would die and there mm. isn't really another alternative and and so that's kind of that's the one path so very much would you flow state would, by would, necessity <laughs> yeah definitely would you would would you advise that you know for you know someone who's starting their journey would you would you give uh, that advice he, even though you know you probably I would was... not advise it but <laughs> I would not tell someone not to do it yeah yeah I think that that is the journey to which you discover yourself is always unique and, mm. and should be just done with utter gentleness and care and love for yourself that's the one thing I'd say and the one thing I didn't do necessarily was look after myself like my health and things like that I worked relentlessly and on balance it wasn't the most productive way to work and mm. a lot of that was driven by again fear so i had mm. to underline what if i don't do this and that is not the best way to do it but is it a good thing to go all in yeah if you can do it you know you'll learn a lot quicker you'll fail yeah. faster and mm. you'll have some success that you can yeah. see the success definitely so, i mean do you, do you you know you was talking about you know, being bullied and, and martial arts. And do you feel like that experience gave you this, you know, inner confidence? Or did you even experiencing, you know, starting up all that business and feeling like you have no choice? Do you did you feel like you had no confidence or was you just not even witnessing it? Or do you just, you know, I know I had there? the I had the strong confidence of someone who's incredibly ignorant. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> in some ways I was able to do all this stuff because I didn't didn't know the way it should be done and I didn't understand how to do events and I didn't I didn't have any formal training in that um I you know I was completely just going and going it's possible um and that was 
purely on on heart energy you know i was like i want to do this it's the right thing to do it must work out yeah so, and what's funny is that you know parts of it worked out and parts of it didn't so mm. it's like that's just that was the, the opportunity to go on that on that journey which i fully wholeheartedly took um you know along that journey i i didn't look after my health i um ended up you know not putting enough energy into relationships with people who loved me you know so mm -hmm. they, they fell apart mm -hmm. i um lost friends i wasn't always the most relaxed person i ended up feeling very stressed at times and probably not very nice to be around at times you know mm -hmm. so there's a lot of journeys personally that um that it can it can really trigger stuff latent stuff inside you when you put yourself under that level of stress yeah and when that all started to really become apparent was um you know i was just about getting by and i was so fortunate i had um i was able because of what i was doing was quite new it got picked up by some of the press and it, i got picked up by um like the mayor of london gave me a sort of position and award as a london leader oh wow I um, found myself in um, illustrious company, let's say that. So I was able to get really good advice from people who already had carved out significant careers in sustainability and entertainment. Mm -hmm. They were they were willing to help me and to support me, which was amazing. Um, and at, I also had incredible friends around me um, who, you know, had really um, been there. And there was one guy who I'd worked with for a number of number of years on a magazine which was um, an art magazine and we had kind of you know we'd spent four or five years kind of getting his idea off the ground and then um and seeing how that worked and then um he kind of came on board to support me and and at that point it was like the most crazy thing happened he turned up one day and said joe we're going to liverpool street or shoreditch i think at the time and i said okay <laughs> He goes, I need to show you something. And he couldn't stop grinning. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll come along, you know. Uh, yeah. And we were in the office of uh, Impact Hub. It's now called Impact Hub. I think it was called The Hub before. And it was the original social entrepreneurship uh, office uh, co-working space. So it's, okay. like, it's now around, the, it's like, I don't know, 70 locations around the world. But so I, I also was able to find a place that, you know, was really exposing me to people who were change makers. Mm, I see. And so it was, it was about kind of putting yourself in the right setting, the right set of mind. And, yeah. um, you know, hopefully finding some out of all of that compost, that mix, there's some sort of fertile ideas that come out of it. You know, something will grow. 100%. 100%. Um, and, and, you know, you can't do it in isolation. So I had a lot of support from people who just believed in me. And that's also really, really part of the journey. It's not like a one man's Sisyphean effort to push the boulder up the hill. Absolutely not. I wouldn't have been able to do anything I've done up to this date without other people, you know? Yeah, I can completely imagine that. And when did you, you know, you said you felt this high level of pressure, this high level of intensity. Yeah. What was the stage when you... You know, and it could be any stage, really. I mean, but what was the stage when you, that, that even though you were still being successful and still, well, as you say, you don't like the word successful, but day-to-day -day successful, or maybe not, um, even though you was progressing on your journey, what was the time where that, that type of, you know, pressure on you was relieved or was subsided or, or just like released slightly? When, when was the time in your life when that happened? Yeah, I mean, like most things, it got a lot worse before it got relieved. So um, at that time, for instance, I was able to get LSE as a client. So I did the International Climate Conference. I started to get uh, charities and some um, other companies, clients get a little bit of money into the company. And I, I really mean a small amount. It really wasn't enough to support me particularly. And in that time, I was moving house constantly because I didn't have a home. Mm -hmm. and I was trying to just stay in whoever had a cheap place. So one year I moved 12 times. Wow. Yeah. So that's like, you know, I was living like a nomad. I had mm -hmm. very little resource and I was almost winging it, you know? Um, yeah. And this is what was amazing is I followed my friend with his big smile and he took me to a building and he just opened the front door with the keys in his hand. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and it turns out that he had been given the right to use 
half a block in Shoreditch. Okay. For free. For free. And it was 55,000 square foot. Oh, wow. So it had seven floors. It was so big. It was dilapidated, but I looked at it like, oh my God, I see the potential. <laughs> and uh, that changed my life because we were able in the space of about six months to take deposits for people who would uh, move in for their offices, use that mm-hmm. deposit to refurbish just the room. Mm-hmm. And then they would get in and actually start being tenants. So yeah. we were able to slowly grow the dilapidated building into something that was completely functional by pre-selling um, op- the, and getting people's deposits. Like we didn't have any money. So we used this resource and we started to, it started to make money and we at the time built i think it was europe's largest co-working space oh wow when when, when was that what 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 year was that 2008 i think we started okay so within two years of starting this concept i was in a huge spot you know um uh there were you know there was a team of about 25 we had probably 80 volunteers we had 10,000 people use it for non-profit things for free. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the Olympics committee use the roof as a test bed for testing the compost roofs that they use for the media center. So we had PhD mm-hmm. scientists coming in. We had a permacultural roof garden. We had bees, so we're producing Hotston honey. We had a nightclub in the basement and the basement <laughs> was so big, the nightclub was the largest nightclub in the area. And that's wow. That's the party, party zone of London, yeah. Oh, yeah, big time, big time. So we had, you know, occasionally thousands of people turn up to party in queues all around the block kind of thing. It was like mm. a place to be. Um, I was in the middle of all of this, again, with very little knowledge about how to run a business. Um, mm. and I was the buck stops with me. I was the CEO. Mm. So I had huge amounts of pressure on me to always be making the right decision i had a a set of incredibly talented and intelligent directors who were with me but also weren't being paid enough Mm. uh, and who had a lot of questions and in some ways could see my faults quite explicitly because uh you know we were friends and we were working together so it sounds like your like your likability factor was a a big part in getting these people around you it sounds like to me yeah I mean also when you have a huge building at that age and you basically say we can do what we want you know it's incredibly Mm. attractive proposition and it ends Mm. up being a bit like a madhouse Um, Mm -hmm. and I think everyone who was involved has has incredible jaw-dropping stories from that period Um, yeah there was so much stuff that happened um, and it was every day something that was just unbelievable Um, in the end we had about 250 tenants so we had mm. all these people from shoe cobblers to um, to advanced digital agencies. We had um, high-level political advocates. We had all kinds of stuff. And, and the building itself started to be used as a, as a kind of flagship location for launching things. So we had we had the government use it for the launching their, their road to Copenhagen for the climate summits, UN climate summits, maybe yep. broadcast global from the location. We had it mm. scoped out to see whether or not it could have the prime minister come and do things. Um, uh-huh. But uh, the, the back ex- exit was too dangerous, so they couldn't because there wasn't enough of a kind of um, what happens if this happens kind of thing. We yeah. had uh, lots and lots of event companies hire it. We had um, some of the top climate activists hire it the week after the government hired it so it was almost like we were working across the entire spectrum of beliefs and opinions but trying to move things forwards from a social point of view and a cause point of view really trying to support anyone who is doing something really meaningful around sustainability and creativity Um, Mm -hmm. so we did uh yeah we had the royal society of arts launch uh, art educational exhibitions there it was just huge it was huge it had a capacity of thousands and thousands of people so you know um it became kind of amazing hotbed for talent and there's a lot of people who went through there or who were involved who are now very kind of successful in their own rights and it's so diverse from graffiti artists to yeah as i said like you know top top end political pr 
people. So it's mm. a massive, massive journey. And being in the middle of all that, I was supposed to somehow make sense of it. And of course I couldn't, you know, mm. and it's- well, at all, what at all, what did you, was you struggling well, like? I, I, I was struggling every day. Mm. Um, and the reality was, you know, looking back on it, even now I would find it a massive struggle because mm. it was so wild. It was just mm. like anyone was doing anything they wanted and it was so challenging and we had no money to do it. You know, so everything was based on earned income. Um, and we were getting bills from the, you know, electricity bills of like, you know, 200,000 pounds. And wow. it's like, well, how on earth are we going to pay that? You know, so, so it's just like these kind of figures that were just kind of being, you know, turned up. I, I didn't know you had to save money for the energy bills at that scale. Right. Yeah. But, but at the same time, we were doing things like fixing the buildings, you know, because the cost itself to fix the building was high. So I remember the time and it was about November where it was freezing cold and suddenly a big cheer ran up through the whole building. You could hear it like a big roar. Mm. It was like, what's that? And it was like, touch the, touch the radiators. We touched them and they finally worked. And the whole place is going to be warm for the winter. You know? <laughs> so it was like, and we'd been promising our tenants, please don't move out. We're going to get it fixed, you know? And the cost, I think for that was something like 10,000 pounds. We'd just yeah. scrapped it together. So the heating went on, you know? It was that kind of experience and it was very much everyone together kind of thing. Mm. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a particularly good business plan thought around it. It was just do it and see, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was a big journey and uh what was interesting is that that company itself um in the end couldn't pay the bills and the reason that happened was because we were running it as a non-profit we mm. had expected to get charity support for the business rates and the council in the end said well we would give it to you but we've already spent our budget for that subject this year so we'll give it to you next year mm. so you know i was looking down another huge bill yeah I'm huge yeah so in the end i had to say okay well this is this is the end of the line for me on that company and i i had to go into insolvency and uh you know i hadn't done anything wrong so it wasn't a problem mm. we handed over all the assets and we handed over the whole rights and management of the whole place to another company run by someone else a non-profit mm-hmm. um, and i stepped away from it and i suddenly went from being you know quite someone in charge and people were listening to to someone who had almost no I had to kind of kind of arrange to come and collect my post you know <clears throat> and at that point I remember the day I did that and signed the papers I remember sitting on the top of the roof and meditating surrounded by this beautiful permaculture garden that had been created on the roof garden yeah of Shoreditch and I remember feeling that weight lift from my shoulders wow and wow. I slept well that night. And prior to that, for the two years before, I'd woken up four or five times a night. Every night? Yeah. So I was under so much heavy stress. You know, I mm. wasn't trained for that. I wasn't prepared for it. I just went in again, like completely deep, deep end and try and swim, you know? Mm. And my feeling was, damn, I survived it. You know, <laughs> that, and that was success. In some ways, my failure was the success. It was the, end, yeah. it was the ending of the of the torture that I'd also been putting myself through, but at the same time, we'd achieved a lot. So, you know, that's a big mixed bag. But at that time, I was 25 years old. Wow, that's really young, really young to be taking on a lot of that responsibility and everything. I mean, do you, did you, did you, did you ever have like, you know, goals? Because um, it's, it's, it, it sounds like you didn't, um, in a way, uh, from, in that period anyway, um, that you just described. I think um, I think we had goals. I just don't think we had the the deep level planning tactics that's required to pull something mm, off like that. You know, mm, you can always have goals. I was very successful at writing goals. The problem is if you don't have the the knowledge to do something effectively, you're going to fail repeatedly until you get mm, or until you learn. Yeah. And the other thing is that um, you know a system like that, which is very tangible, it's bricks and mortars and involves a lot of people. Mm. And it involves a lot of finance transactions. If you don't have the tactical operational excellence to do that, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to do it. And, you know, we were able to do it because really because of the skill of the people around me. But that still didn't mean, you know, we still let some things slip and get through the gap and that they then turned out to be critical points. Right. Um, yeah. And one of the weird thing was the whole time I never raised any financing. So this was all organic growth. Um, mm-hmm. 
and looking back now, I think, wow, I should have just got investment, you know, like, wow, yeah. why didn't I do that? You know, um, but I had this kind of, uh, it was almost like uh, riding into battle with the flag, mm. charging mm. at the enemy, blowing the horn <laughs> and no regard for whether you come back or not. That so warrior spirit, that warrior yeah, spirit was still in yeah. you. Yeah. So, mm. It's incredibly powerful, that warrior spirit. It's incredibly, it can change the world. Mm, mm. But knowing what I know now is there are many paths to change. And mm. harnessing that is very good, but making it your only game, oh, it's a bit challenging, you know? Yeah, very. And obviously, you know, you may not do something, you may look back at it and maybe not want to do it different, but you understand that it can be done different. And, you know, from that moment, that you that that pressure lifted up off your shoulders mm. where, where where did you go for from there is this when you went into you know i, I felt really lost for a while actually mm. Um, mm. and partly that was uh you know I, but i also saw the way that people changed how they were treating me mm. So even people close to me suddenly didn't really have much time They, you know, it, and I really saw through like, oh, okay. So that's the difference between success and someone thinking you're a failure. Right. Mm. And so there was a period of time where I was reconciling whether or not I actually believed I was a failure internally, you know, mm. Mm. and luckily I didn't let it stick. I didn't think, no, I, I thought, no, this is, you know, I've done so well and done so much energy in a positive direction there must be something new and I'm still young. And I thought, you know, this isn't the end. So, yes. but yeah, there were, you know, it really revealed to me a lot of human nature and what people are like around money, success, uh, power, and, um, and how they just treat you differently and sometimes pretty badly, you know? Um, were, you, were you upset about the way some people treated you? Very much so, yeah, mm. yeah. And I think it's very difficult not to be when someone's, like, say, for instance, you have very close friends who suddenly like they're, they're incredibly rude to you, or they start talking yeah. badly to you, you know, or they or they blame you for stuff which, frankly, it wasn't your like you didn't didn't mean to or you didn't do it. You know, there's a conversation to be had rather than to be attacked by someone. Yeah. yeah so there's so times like that, and it's almost like the thing is, I was somewhat also a bit of a martyr. Like I really can't. I had like 200 quid in my bank account at the end of that. So I had nothing. I had no career, no way. I had no like security, nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of mm -hmm. like back at square one, you know? Yeah. So uh, it was, I, you know, I definitely didn't put myself first. <laughs> That's so my integrity was still there, but um, I would definitely put myself in a compromised situation. Do you, do, you, do you, I mean, you know, selfishness is obviously people look at it as a bad thing, but you know, at the time, do you think you should have been more more selfish, potentially? I think the one lesson is that selfish. I don't think selfishness is good at all. I think it's. I think it's a toxic, uh, corrosive attitude. But mm. um, I I do prescribe now to the idea that you should pay yourself first, mm. um, and then if you can afford to pay someone else, do that. You know, and just grow according to that, because otherwise you have an unstable core, which is your own your own kind of livelihood and you're kind of building out without a strong enough core so mm -hmm. i don't regret anything i did but uh, i would do things differently now you know okay i see so you know maybe skipping a few years now um you know when did you because i know you went to china and you know you was trying to improve the environment and everything like that what what was what what was the decision the decision to do that how did that come about so I first went to China to study Kung Fu a long time ago when I was about 18, 19. Yeah. So, um, and I, this is a weird one because, um, you know, at the time, again, I had no money and I just went, I'm going to do it because a friend mm. of mine called me and he said, oh, I'm going to go to China to study Kung Fu. I said, well, I've been doing that for six years and you haven't. So I got to come with you. Um, and uh, I didn't have the money. And the next day in the post arrived a letter from my uncle saying that he had inherited some money from a great aunt and he was a 2000 pound check. Oh, nice. I was like, <laughs> that's, I was like, you know, and again, it's like these flow states. I was like, that's what, that's going on this. I'm going to China, you know? Mm. 
So I'd already been to China a long time ago. And um, coincidentally, one of the groups that we hosted in the building was from a, a delegation from China. It was um, civil, like civil leaders. So basically like city, city planners and stuff like that. There was about okay. hundreds of, hundred of them and they came over on behalf of British council. Um, okay. And I hosted them for a day. Um, mm. And by return, the British Council, the British government was sending back leaders from the UK to go and have the same kind of um, cultural tour and connection and, and exposure that the Chinese, it was like an exchange, basically. Um, yeah. So I joined that, I was invited to join that, and I, I invited a few other people who I knew to join as well. So it ended up being about eight of us or nine of us who we all knew. Yeah. And it was called China 400, and it was the... Um, we were part of the cultural delegation so i like they had sent they were sending about 100 of the cultural like what they called leaders um to china to um go and see what's going on there and it's very much a cultural kind of exchange there wasn't any money or anything like that um and the day before i went there i got invited to to the office of uh, someone who was in advertising, CEO in advertising, and they said, look, we have uh, a big CSR program and we don't know what's going on in China. Would you would you go, you know, on our behalf while you're there and suss it out? And I was like, yeah, yeah sure. I'll stay an extra couple of weeks. Um, so flew to China, um, did the delegation, which was incredible. What a wonderful mm -hmm. experience. Um, and then I stayed and everyone else got on a plane to go home. Mm. I was in China on my own, uh, again, with no money. <laughs> um, and I was in a foreign country, you know, not knowing uh, much about anything. And China is a particularly foreign country, as in at the time there was, wasn't very many, let's say, English signs or anything particularly helpful. Um, and I found myself into a place, basically in a hotel and uh, doing some work. And that turned out to be, went from two weeks to something like three, four months I ended up staying. Wow. Yeah. And then I came back to the UK um, and I did a little bit of consulting and I kind of got by and I uh, had, phone call again and the phone call was from someone i'd met in china while i was there yeah and they said hey we have an event project um and i'd like you to be the director of it like come and you know manage the event for us and i was like and they were like it's in shanghai and uh we'll fly you over tomorrow and i was like well i need to get my visa so about three days later i got on a plane to china and again i'm living hand to mouth this is a period where i really like had no money so i arrived and i knew i had to be picked up and i didn't even have enough money for food when i had arrived so at that time um they picked me up and i spent about three days not sleeping to sort out this impending event that was coming in about a week and a half or something ridiculous of the deadline yeah um, but I used all the planning skills and all the event skills that I just accumulated from running the events company and the, and the venue. Yeah, and definitely. At that time, I'd probably done 200 events. So oh. you know, I'd been doing a lot of different projects and uh, we'd had audiences of about 1.6 million total. So Jeez. the scale, scale of the projects I'd already been doing was suffice enough for my training to be mm. really good at this point. Yeah. And I was capable and able, despite not having any formal training, to pull off the organization of this event it worked so well and successfully that the um owners of the company that the client said hey would you like to stay and work with us and i thought yeah you know i don't have this is i was like again flow let's just go with what's coming <laughs> so i suggested that and that then led to a two-year period of living in China and consulting with a technology company, uh, which was a social network and which ended up building an app, which has now got the same amount of users as Tinder. So it was a dating oh. app. Wow. So very successful company and they've done very well. And the people behind it were so lovely and intelligent. And I was just like, I had a wonderful time. Mm. Um, 
I also had a couple of business partners from that process who were doing it with me. And um, there was this kind of like conversation about how, although it's technology, it wasn't, you know, sustainability, it wasn't changing the world. And they wanted to um, definitively kind of stop doing that work and, and do something else, you know? Yeah. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that has been my path in the, path in the pre previous, uh, what felt like a previous life in another country at this point. Um, mm. and I was like, okay, well, let's do it. So we started to do a lot of other projects, which um, were, were, were again, quite a lot of firsts in, in China. So we did, you know, the first kind of introduction of things like guerrilla gardening and um which is spontaneous community planting you know okay um, and uh we did quite a lot of environmental impact work which hadn't really been done in china much um mm. and you know i worked with changing companies around to look at the impacts that they were doing and um well, the impact of the environment how they affect the environment correct yeah. Okay. yeah yeah and you know um it was pretty cutting edge stuff, you know, the, the Financial Times covered us, a lot of the papers in, in China covered us. There's a lot of information out there and that company is called We Impact. Um, and uh, we just did this, and again, I found myself doing stuff which you know, really didn't have a precedent, but at this time, I wasn't even able to speak the language. Yeah. So I was in this kind of weird world of, started to accumulate quite a lot of self-doubt because not only was the culture very different but i wasn't actually unable to understand what was going on you know mm. and i was i was general manager so i was also meant to be directing the company yes this was a fantastic interview with joseph oliver we had to end it short but this is only part one part two will be coming to you very shortly as there is so much that we have not discussed Cannot wait to hear part two. Cannot wait to bring you guys part two. This is another man-to-man -man podcast. Stay tuned. We've got so much coming in the pipeline in the next few weeks. There's so many different types of people that I'm interviewing. So stay tuned and see you again soon.